So John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test them, for he knew, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, you know that we are hungry beggars that are just coming for food. And so we ask this morning that you would give us the bread that does not perish. That you would give us what would ultimately feed our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at a passage that has some difficult and hard sayings where we find even the disciples themselves acknowledging this this is difficult. Um, And what we find in the middle of this is a living metaphor, really, um, that that by the time we get to chapter 6 is difficult enough that really... uh, Even the disciples are going to be challenged by it, and it's all referencing Jesus' body and blood. The disciples say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I think the living metaphor is difficult for many. So perhaps uh, this morning, as I begin with another living metaphor, uh, I I hope this will be helpful to you. And The one I'm thinking of is another eating scene in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 3 there. This is the Lord. He's speaking to Ezekiel here. And so listen to how this unfolds. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth. As sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of a foreign speech or a hard language, but you're sent to the house of Israel. In other words, to to your own people, you're called to speak. The imagery here has power. Uh, It conveys a message to you. Why eat the scroll? Because it's God's word. 
What you eat is in you, or the way we might put it is you are what you eat, and what you are comes out of you. The power of what God is conveying to Ezekiel has been, he's been tasked as a preacher who is to ingest God's word so that what comes out of him as he speaks to the people is God's word. It's a living metaphor, but a powerful one. This morning, we wrestle with a living metaphor. Jesus is the bread of life. He is our source of spiritual nourishment that gives us life. Jesus is our bread of life. I'm going to unpack this in in three sections here. First, we'll see a big dinner and a late night stroll. Then we'll see the true and better exodus. And then we'll conclude by looking at the hard sayings and a right response of faith. So first, a big dinner and a late night stroll. Who doesn't love a big dinner and a late night stroll? I do. Well, here, the dinner, you're totally familiar with it. Many of you are more than familiar with the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a big dinner. Uh, Jesus takes a little boy's lunch, (laughs) five barley loaves, a couple fish, and he turns them into enough food to feed what is estimated to be more like fifteen to 20,000 folks. You know, the text says 5,000 men. That's not counting the little boy nor it's counting the women involved and the children there, possibly 15,000 or more folks fed from this single meal. Now, I imagine that this bread is probably had to have been just as tasty, if not as better than the sourdough bread that we have here for our communion bread. And I'd like to think that the fish was Mediterranean salmon or halibut, but it probably was tilapia, which was commonly found there in the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, at this point, these hungry people are there. Why are they there? They're there because they were seeking Jesus because he had been healing people. They're coming to be healed. They're coming to see the signs. And now they've been here and they're hungry. And and Jesus will give them an important sign in the miraculous provision of the food. Perhaps from a basket. I don't know exactly how this looked, but he put the boys' lunch in a basket and he just continuously pulls out more and more and more and it's distributed until everybody is eaten. And finally, when the last little crumb is eaten, everybody just says, ah, that was just right. No, this is a buffet where the food kept going until they are stuffed and it's not a last crumb that's left over. It's baskets of food that are left over. Go collect up the leftover food. And when they do, they find that there are, interestingly, 12 baskets left over. What's this mean? Well, let me tell you. I, be, I know for sure what the extra provision shows us. It means that Jesus can provide more than enough. You need grace? I need grace? He has more than enough. You need provision? He has more than enough. You need forgiveness? He has more than enough. You need wisdom. He has more than enough. And yet, I think there's one more reason why there's 12, exactly 12 baskets. Not 11, not 13, 12. I think this is because in Jesus' reference to the food, to the bread, to he being the bread of life, there's a connection with the 12 apostles grabbing up the 12 baskets and recognizing there's more food for them to distribute out to people who are not here at this meal at that moment. 
thinking beyond the 15,000 people are here. It's, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing, as it were, to a time where the apostles would be going to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, giving this bread of life to those who are starving. What's the response of the people at this point? What is the response? This is a Moses-like prophet. They actually say, this is the prophet who was to come. This is a Moses-like prophet. This is a a Davidic-like king. So let's crown him like a king. Let's make him king. Look at verse 15. That's what we read. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why? Because again, as we saw last week, that Moses and David prefigure Jesus. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. It is they that speak of me. By pre-design, Moses leading the people into the wilderness where there was no bakeries, uh, leading the people into the wilderness where there were no grocery stores so that God would have to provide manna, bread, that has come down from heaven. This is all to foreshadow that moment where Jesus provides bread here. Now, in the Exodus, the Israelites grumbled. And here, too, we read that the Jews and even the disciples grumble. Moses goes up on the mountain. What do we read here in verse 3 and verse 15? Jesus goes up onto the mountain. Uh, Moses initiated the Passover by leading the people out of bondage and, and, and slavery by, and then saving them. So here too, Jesus, during the time of Passover, we read that in verse 4, these people are being led by their true rescuer to deliver them from death and life. Friends, Jesus is the true and better Moses who's reenacting all the things that Moses did on a true and better spectrum. The only thing here really that we're missing, what are you missing? If this is reenacting the Exodus, what you need is the wonderful statement from God in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses says, well, what should I tell people your name is? And 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 the Lord says, tell them I am Moses. Tell them I am sent you. And, And recall, then after that, what you get is Moses leading the people through the Red Sea on dry ground. We just need a scene like that. And it's unfortunate we don't have that here. Or do we? Look at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and they had rowed about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him in the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land that they were going. (laughs) Okay, okay. So he doesn't part the sea. You got me. But he does one better than Moses. He walks on top of the sea. And, And did you catch it? When he says here, it's a little obscured in our English, but he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. The NLT rephrases this so that you can't miss it. It puts it this way because it's the same root words, ego and me. Do not be afraid. I am here. Do not be afraid. I am here. So friends, it's clear. Jesus is reliving the Exodus scene. But what does this mean? Why why does this have teeth for you and I as Christians? 
In other words, who cares? I'll show you. This here is the true and better Exodus. And we come now to the true and better Exodus. Part of the issue is that the first Exodus brought people out of slavery. The Lord provided manna in the wilderness, providing for them. He saved them out of slavery. He provides the food that they need, but they die. And so we come to verses 48 and 58 to really see the whole issue of this. Look at 48, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus says this actually two times in this passage. I am the bread of life. And you and I, we, we can you know, think of different ways that we can try and increase our life or do better with our life or give you more life. I've got pills that I can give you that will, that will extend your life a little bit. Um, they, they will increase your health. Um, you, you give me enough time, give me enough time, and I could come up with a cure for cancer. Um, I could give you the most clean, organic food that is the most nutritious thing ever, and I could put you on a perfect, tailored exercise routine that's just for you. And yet, with all that, the pills and the exercise and the food and the perfect everything, your tombstone still has two dates on it. Born, 1995. Born, 1973. Born, 1949. I could keep going, but I know some of you are saying, please stop there. (laughs) And there will be another date on there that will say, died. 2000 and, well, we're still here, so I'm not going to give you that date, but give us enough time. It'll be 2000 something. And unless the Lord tarries in his returning, unless the Lord waits, those two dates are going to be on there. Born and died. They're both going to be there. And you and I will enter death. But what if rather you entered upon your physical death? What if you rather entered into truly living? First John chapter three says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been appeared to us. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. What, what if your life that you entered into made this life seem like death? What if the life that you're going to into when that tombstone gets put in, the life that you enter into makes this life seem like black and white and one-dimensional because you've entered into the three-dimensional color? This is why Jesus has come. To guarantee that you're entering into that life and that that life actually begins now as you trust and believe in him. John chapter 3 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, everlasting life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, the, the gospel is not just forgiveness of sin. It is. And it's not just the removal of wrath. It is. It's also living. It's the end to which we are created to live with our creator for his glory. And it will make this seem like black and white, one dimensional. And if you're a Christian here, I just, again, this begins as you trust in Christ today. See, you and I, we struggle because the life that that is promised to us has not yet appeared. The life that I'm describing that's so good that John says, we don't even know exactly what it'll be like. 
We struggle because we want to pull that forward and bring it into this moment now. This week I was struck just how really the issue is subtle, but it's here. It's an issue of the prosperity gospel. Um, see how this comes about because after Christ in, uh, is with the, with the disciples here on the other side of the sea, the crowd then follows in their own boats and they finally catch up with Jesus in their own boats. They'd been there with the feeding of the 5,000, the 15,000. Uh, some of them get into boats and they follow Jesus across. And they say, Lord, like, when did you get here? Because remember, when, once Jesus got into the boat, they immediately, that moment, were where they were supposed to be, safe on the shore. And they said, well, when, when did you get here? We're, we're coming to follow you. And why is it that they follow Jesus? Is it because He's explaining the gospel to them and they want to hear more? No, it's because they saw signs and they believed in him, but it was primarily because he was doing these healings and because he was feeding them. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 27. Verse 27, he says here, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And and, and Jesus answered him, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now with Jesus' words here, they assume that God has some sort of work that they are uh, to be doing. So in in essence, if I could paraphrase it, it might be like this. Look, Jesus, just, just tell us what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, and, and so that we can sort of check the box and move on. And, and the gospel again and again and again highlights belief or believing. In fact, I was looking again this week, just double checking. Every single chapter in the book of John mentions, mentions belief or believing with the exception of three. And so I start reading through those three. And it's very clear there in every section of those chapters It's all referencing belief, just not using the word. When you abide with Jesus, why are you abiding? Because you trust him, because you believe in him, because you have hope in him. This whole book opens and and concludes with belief in Jesus. It's crucial. And he says essentially here, well, you want to know the work that God desires you to do more than anything else? Believe Jesus is who he says he is, and that he's come to save you truly from death, to give you real life. Scotty Smith puts it, how can we acquire this life-giving bread? The only work that guarantees this possession of this redemptive manna is to believe in Jesus. The gospel sabotages any notion of legalism or performance-based acceptability with God. The only thing that we bring to Jesus is our need, and all we can offer is the admission that we have nothing to offer. All we offer is the admission that we have nothing to offer. So back to the crowd, verse 30 here, in which we read, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, the hinting here is a little ridiculous. The way it may read is a little bit like this. Show us a sign, Jesus, if you can, Give us a meal, Jesus, if you can. Can you do that? Are you able to perform the miracles that Moses performed by bringing manna down out of heaven? Uh, Question, what just happened the day before? (laughs) It was one day before. He fed 5,000 men, perhaps as many as 15,000 people. Jesus, 
Friends, he's not here to simply give you your best life now. His primary reason is not your physical food. That's important. This is why it's in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That's important. It's okay to pray for that. But that's not his primary reason for coming. No, he would rather, Jesus would rather that you and I starve to death and go be with him than to provide for you infinite food that leaves you spiritually in hell. Let me say this again. He would rather that you starve and die and go to be with him than give you all the buffets of the world that leave you spiritually in hell. It reminds me that when we seek the Father's goods, when we, like the prodigal son, we just want the Father's inheritance, as it were, we, you and I, we end up living in the pig pen. We have nothing. We have neither the Father nor his provision. But when you seek the kingdom of heaven, all things are added. Seek Christ and you get fed. You seek to be fed and you don't have the Lord and nor do you have the meal. I think this brings us to the most profound statement here in verse 35, where Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. and Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Symbolically, I think there's here enough for us to make all the clear connections. We, we wouldn't say that somebody seriously needs to eat Jesus or to drink physically his real blood. We understand that the good news of his coming is to our souls. Jesus' good news to us spiritually satisfies one's deepest need and desire to know God and to have that re- restored relationship with him. The context is clear here that the person here who has this satisfaction is the one who comes to Jesus and the one who believes in Jesus receives both the longing of their hearts, but also eternal life. So would you come, would would you come to Jesus this morning? Come to him. Verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Oh, I'd like to come to Jesus. I'd like to come to Jesus, but if I do, he knows I'm just a fraud. He knows deep down that I'm a two-faced man. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Oh, but if I come to Jesus, but then I'll be tied to these other people and they might come to know the real me and they might cast me out or they might not like me. All who come to me, I will never cast out. Okay, fine, but I hardly had this figured out. I, 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 I don't even have one Bible verse memorized and I struggle to read and I can't really make sense of all these things the way you can. All who come to me, I will never cast out. Okay, But this is going to come with serious loss. I'm going to have to give up my sin in my life. And I'm going to have to give up the things that I've been holding on to that my heart has been worshiping. All who come to me, I will never cast out. Is this what you've been looking for? To receive this morning from Christ the bread that will never go bad. And so I'm calling on you this morning to turn from your darkness, to turn from your sin to embrace the fact that, yes, you're still work, a work in progress and to place all of your trust and your hope onto Jesus, believing in him for eternal life. The metaphor of his body and his blood, this is all shadowy language that's speaking about this coming sacrifice, the atonement, the work of he dying in the stead of ruined sinners. And he hangs as the lamb and victory. 
Where does this all lead then in John chapter 6? You know that Jesus is perhaps the worst preacher I've ever met, if you go by 21st century standards. You see, the way that this is supposed to work is if you were doing a, let's say we were to go do a church plan over here and we just had a handful of folks. Well, we're going to take the handful of folks and um, in 21st century you know, America, the way this works is we ought to be, you know, give us a year or two and we ought to be up in the hundreds. Um, and if you're really doing it the way you're supposed to be doing it, give us a, you know, up to a decade and we'll be up in the thousands. But Jesus is doing right here the exact inverse, the exact opposite. He starts with the thousands and he ends up with a handful of people. What's wrong with you, Jesus? How does Jesus then respond to this situation? Well, he responds by acknowledging the hard sayings and giving the right response of faith. Look at the conclusion of this chapter then as we see verse 60 and we'll stop at 65. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. (laughs) Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who it were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Boy, Jesus, you, you really know how to drive people away. We see the difficult truth that the same sun that, that melts the wax is the same sun that hardens the clay. Not everybody responds to the gospel in the same way. When the gospel is spoken, it, 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 it's a dividing line. Brother from brother are divided and it will melt the heart of some and it will harden the heart of another. And one might wonder if the way that Jesus is proclaiming and speaking these hard sayings about his body and blood, if at the very end of it all, nobody's left. What if it drips down to to no one? To which we recognize God always has his people. God has his remnant. Echoed several times in this section is that God draws people and pulls people to himself. Verse 37 through 39, we see all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Or look down in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, towards the end of this passage, we have even the disciples grumbling over all of this, joining the crowd who clearly were going to distance themselves from Christ. But this grumbling won't stop God's plans from going forward. It won't thwart his plans to save his people I'm not here this morning to resolve all the tension between God's sovereignty and man's uh, free will or his actions or his responsibility. I'm not here to to solve all the tension in this. But but I'm here to simply say that, um, as I, I would put it, Jim Hamilton says it this way, that the Father has planned to give certain people to Jesus. And Jesus says that he does the Father's will by coming to save those people. Thus, Jesus explains in verse 36 that not everyone will see and believe. We see here with the the disciples, the twelve, they too have yet to really grasp the reality of Jesus' coming down and and, and his ascension. 
We see that in verse 62, where what then if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's like he's asking, um, you know, what's going to be going through your minds if you're having a hard time understanding about my body and my blood and how this relates to me giving you life? How are you going to make sense when you see my death and my burial and my resurrection? How is this all going to land on you? That I am the source of life, that I am the provision that you have nowhere else to go. What will be your understanding of these things? The flesh, the flesh is not going to help you at all in this case. You're going to struggle. If you think humanistically, it won't work. Look at verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Friends, this entire vignette that John gives us is all driving to this one moment right here. I love this. Where, where we get this interaction between Jesus and Peter. Here, Jesus asks, are, are you all going to leave me too? I started with 15,000. Now I'm down to, to just a few. Are you going to leave me? Here, I, I've lost the crowds. They just wanted a party trick. They just wanted another buffet meal. Are you guys going to leave me as well? Well, verse 68 Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. And we come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, Peter has something revealed to him. He doesn't say, Jesus, uh, where else could we go? You're the one who keeps feeding us bread. He says, Jesus, you are the bread. Your words are words of eternal life. If we leave you, we leave life. You are the Holy One of God. In other words, you are the Messiah. You are our Savior. You are the new and better Moses to rescue us, not from the Egyptians, not even from the Romans, but to rescue us from death and to give us that life. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. And friends, for us, there's a a real and living sense that once we have grasped the reality like, like Paul does, where he says, because I have true life, whether I've got the buffet meal or not, it's of no concern. I've learned to be content with little or with much because I've tapped into true living. Physical bread has less of a pull on us then. Jesus' sacrifice, his body and blood gives us life like no other. God's word gives us life like no other. Johnson, a a character in Flannery O'Connor's story, The Lame Shall Enter First, he, he displays this perfectly. I heard a pastor share the story, and I just had to share it with you. Flannery O'Connor, she shares from her Southern Gothic uh, style of writing, which is a bit macabre. But, but the setting of the story is interesting. It's a, uh, a man uh, whose name is Shepherd. He is a, a, a single father who takes in this little boy who's like an orphan troublemaker. And, and this boy, Johnson, is, is brought in. And, and he has him seated at his table. And this back and forth conversation is really interesting because there, this man shepherd who really turns out to not be a good shepherd at all, uh, he he antagonizes him. Uh, shepherd, we read, he leaned forward and he said in this low, furious voice to to Johnson, he says, "Put that Bible up and eat your dinner." Johnson continued, he's searching for the passage. Put that Bible up, Shepherd said. The boy stopped and looked up. His expression was startled, but pleased. That book is something for you to hide behind, Shepard said. 
It's for cowards, for people who are afraid to stand on their own feet and figure things out for themselves. Johnson's eyes snapped. He backed away from his, his chair and his table and he says, Satan has you in his power. He said, not only me, but you too. Shepard reached across the table to grab the book, but Johnson snatched it and he put it in his lap. Shepard laughed. You don't really believe in that book. And, and I know you don't believe in it. I believe it, Johnson said. You don't know what I believe and what I don't. Shepard shook his head. You don't believe it. You're too intelligent. I ain't too intelligent, the boy muttered. You don't know nothing about me. And even if I didn't believe it, it would still be true. You don't believe it, Shepard said. His face was taunt. I believe it, Johnson said. And I'll show you I believe it. He opened the book in his lap and he tore out a single page and he thrust it into his mouth. His eyes were fixed on Shepard and his jaws worked furiously as the paper crackled and he chewed. Stop this, Shepard said in a dry, burnout voice. Stop it. The boy raised the Bible and he tore out another page with his teeth and he began grinding it in his mouth and his eyes were burning and Shepard reached across the table and knocked the book out of his hand. Leave the table, he said coldly. Johnson swallowed what it was in his mouth and his eyes widened as if a vision of splendor were opening up before him and he said, I've eaten it. I've eaten it. I've eaten it like Ezekiel and it was honey to my mouth. Leave this table, Shepard said, and his hands were clenched beside his plate. I've eaten it, the boy cried, and his wonder transformed his face. He said, I've eaten it like Ezekiel, and I don't want none of your food after it, nor nor ever more. There is a picture for you, a living metaphor. Will you have his life? Will you make a priority in your life to dine on this food? So much of what you're eating, friends, it gives you no life. In fact, I would argue so much of what you guys and I eat is taking our life. But will you eat his word that gives you eternal life? Jesus asked you, I think, even this morning, will you go away too? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, Jesus is the bread of life. And he is our source of spiritual nourishment that gives us life. Will you join me in telling the world, I've eaten it like Ezekiel. And it's honey to my mouth. And world, I don't want none of your food, no now, nor ever more. Let's pray. Father, where else can we go to be satisfied in the way that you satisfy? Who can give us a hope beyond this day or guarantee a meal far into the future? Lord, would you fill that God-shaped hole in our heart so that this morning we believe. We say this morning, we do believe. You have the words of eternal life. And Father, they they are sweet to us. So we give you thanks for the provision. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.